Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14 from the message translation. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. And he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here, in what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. And then John 18, 36 from the NIV. So Jesus has been arrested without resisting. And he's standing before Pilate, who is questioning Jesus. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Well, it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which usually means I start to gear up and preach about Christmassy type things, uh, and we'll get to that. I promise. We're going to start our new series called Missing Christmas next week. Today, though, I wanted to talk about something that um, a number of people have asked me about recently. I've gotten a lot of questions about this, and that is the war in Israel. Gaza. Uh, now we've had some challenging sermons over the last month or two, uh, so I don't want to like give us big issue fatigue <laughs> or something. But at the same time, I've had people ask questions um, about what's going on, and so I wanted to address at least some of it. Now here is what I will not be talking about. Okay, here's what I will not be talking about: is the existence of the modern nation state of Israel. A fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. Who is really to blame for the ongoing tensions between Israel and Palestine? What is the geopolitical history between these groups of people? Is this war one of the signals of the end times? These are all questions that I've been asked and had conversations about with people over the last several weeks. I'm not going to be looking at those questions this morning. (laughs) 
Now, I've got thoughts and opinions about all of those. But my desire today is not to get us all worked up, but rather to speak to us as followers of Jesus about how we conduct ourselves in the public square and in relationship to each other and others in our circles of life when it comes to big issues like this. Now, if you want to talk to me about any of those questions, we can, of course, talk at any time. And actually, today, after the service, we are going to have a space where we can talk about things candidly and with respect. Uh, so if you were with us last year, you'll remember a series that we did called Elephant in the Room, where we addressed some kind of difficult subjects, some difficult topics. And after each of those services, we met in the youth room, which is directly behind us, uh, for some conversation. We had some ground rules that we established to make sure that these, these conversations were safe places to share. You could ask anything. Um, <clears throat> we were able to talk to and learn from each other. Uh, so we're going to be making that same safe space for conversation available after today's service as well. So when the service is over, um, after a few minutes of chatting and stuff, then we're going to open up that room and we'll gather in there for conversation. And if you want to talk through any one of those questions that I said I will not be preaching about, uh, we can talk about them there in that room, and it's a safe place. So we invite you to come to that after the service, if that is your desire. So if I'm not going to be addressing some of these big questions, then what will I be talking about? Well, I'd like to talk to us about our posture, our voices, what are our voices supposed to sound like and call people to during times like these? Well, unless you've been living under a rock lately, uh, you will have noticed that people feel very strongly about the subject of the war in Israel. And that in itself is not a bad thing, right? There are things in this life that we should feel strongly about, and war is one of them. But the strength of people's emotions and thoughts have been boiling over into heated and angry and ugly speech online, to acts of biased violence in our own streets, and to further acts of bloodshed overseas. <clears throat> when I look around at the anger, the disagreements that are allowed to grow to violence, when I see the hurt that is happening over and over and over again, I sometimes feel like King Theoden in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> For those of you who care about that sort of thing. King Theoden is the king of Rohan. And his people are under threat from an army of fighting Orukai from the evil sorcerer Saruman. <sighs> ah, it's cool. It's a good story. So King Theoden and his people flee from their towns and villages and they go to a stronghold where they think that they'll be safe from this army. But while they're hiding there in this stronghold, the army of Orukai overwhelm their defenses. So the people of Rohan are in their last hiding place and King Theoden is left bewildered and overwhelmed at the onslaught and ferocity of the enemy. And right at the point where it looks like he and all the others of Rohan will be overrun. He says this, What can men do against such reckless hate? That's how I feel sometimes. When I see the state of our politics, the wars across the world, 
the divisions, even inside our own churches sometimes? What can mankind do against such reckless hate? Hate that has been allowed to fester and grow unchecked to the point that it threatens to destroy the fabric of humanity. And when I say allowed, hate that's been allowed to fester and grow, I mean that like as opposed to people taking active action to recognize it, to stop it, and to do something more constructive. And then what's more, how do we deal with this hate when we see people in our own churches contributing to these hateful and biased and detrimental sentiments? Now, I haven't I haven't seen that. I don't, I'm not on social media a lot, so I'm not saying that necessarily for people in here. But I have seen it from people in Christian churches contributing to the ugly divisions online about this stuff. Well, when I find, I find that when I look at really big problems, I can get overwhelmed. I'm just a guy. One guy, what can I do with these huge problems? And I can be tempted to just give up. But when I get to these places of scared inaction, it it helps me to be reminded of, of two things. The first, of course, is to remember how big our God is. As big as as some of these questions and our world problems can seem to us, God is way bigger than all of it. And when we remember that God is trustworthy, we can have peace in degrees that we never thought possible. The second thing that helps is to break the really big problems into smaller pieces. So instead of asking what can be done to solve these huge problems... The question can become, what is my response going to be? How am I going to react to all of this? Recently, I had a chance to have a conversation with someone who was very knowledgeable uh, about this situation uh, going on over there in, uh, in Israel, um, in the Gaza Strip, in West Bank. Uh, but he's also knowledgeable in Brethren in Christ theology, uh, Dr. Terry Brensinger. And one thing that he said was that what Israel and Palestine need right now are mutual friends. Mutual friends. Isn't that good? I like the sound of that. But how in the world does that work when right now they are locked in battle? Israel, Palestine, just... Now, I I have to say, Israel claims that they are not at war with Palestine, uh, but instead they are only targeting Hamas, and so I'm glad that that has been at least publicly stated, right? Um, But nonetheless, civilians are dying, and innocent people are being affected. Uh, So in theory, this is not Israel against Palestine, uh, but rather against their governing authority, Hamas. So I need to say that, and I'm grateful for that stated goal. But with that said, when you have two groups of people who have such an intense and bitter history, how can you have mutual friends? Well, I think part of it comes down to the fact that as followers of Christ, we do not have the luxury of siding with any particular nation. 
We are called to be citizens of the donkey kingdom first and above all, not citizens of nations above all. So to be mutual friends, we need to approach this as people who are not siding with one nation over another. And what this means is that as followers of Jesus, our objective is not national victories, but rather victories for fellow image bearers with us. We're to be about the flourishing of all people because it's in people that God has placed his image. In Latin, we call this the imago Dei, the image of God in all of us. We just went through a series um, on our ministries of reconciliation. And we saw in there that uh, all acts of restoring broken things to wholeness are gospel acts. Whether they're social structures, individual relationships with each other, or our own souls to God, bringing wholeness, bringing healing, bringing reconciliation is gospel work. So what will be the work of our voices and posture during this war? And what about other wars? Right, This war doesn't matter more because it happens to be fought in Israel and Gaza as opposed to the Ukraine and Russia. Our voices should be of healing and hope regardless of where the war is being fought. Our hearts should not break specially for one country over another. It should break for all image bearers who are being ripped apart physically, relationally, mentally and emotionally, no matter where they call their physical home. We need to be voices of healing and hope in our world. And even beyond the scope of this war, right? Beyond the scope of the war in Ukraine and Russia. We need to be voices of hope, like in, in our own political discourse, right? Our online interactions with acquaintances and classmates, we need to be voices of healing and hope in our school board meetings, and our office Christmas parties. Wherever we go, our discourse, our constant drumbeat should be about loving fellow image bearers with us. Voices of healing and hope. But then there's the question of how our posture of peace, our posture of healing and hope relates to justice. This is a very real question. Does it mean we just sit on the sidelines? Well, there are times when direct action is required to bring about justice. And we are called to work for that. But the weapons that we wage war with are not the same as the kingdom of this earth. Our weapons are not automatic or semi-automatic. Smart bombs or grenades our weapons are not adversarial or offensive words on social media or in person with others. Our weapons cannot be anything that causes further damage, division, bitterness, or hurt. Because our kingdom is not of this world, our weapons cannot be of this world. We cannot use the means of this world to accomplish what we believe to be the will of Jesus. Now, what does this mean for us in terms of subjugated peoples? Well, we can advocate for, speak up for, and stand side by side with those who are so treated, to use our language from a couple weeks ago. 
We, write, we can write letters to those in authority, right? Not threatening letters, <laughs> not belittling them, but gently and powerfully showing them the way of love and advocating for justice in those ways. We can meet with individuals and have conversations like what we can do after the service today. Moving people's hearts toward the love of Jesus for others. It is not quick work. It is not flashy work. It is not clean work. But we cannot use the weapons of this world. Which kind of brings me back to the question of what can mankind do against such reckless hate? What can we do against the cyclical violence in the Middle East? What can we do when other people are hell-bent on destroying other image-bearers of God, all in the name of justice? What can we do when our only perceived recourse for the wanton killing of women and children is further killing of women and children? Even other soldiers, do we have the right before God to condemn them to death either. Don't give in to hate. Don't do it. Don't let your heart be hijacked from the love and grief of Jesus as we look on this horror. Don't let your heart get bitter. Don't let your heart get tired. Don't get jaded into thinking that the weapons of our warfare must look the same as the weapons of this world. Don't let your heart give up. Look up. Our God is bigger. So what does that mean for us? Don't let others get caught up in that either. Help people side on the side of God's image bearers. Those found in Israel. Those found in Palestine. And you know what? Those found in Hamas. Yes, condemn the actions. <laughs> I do. Condemn the actions of Hamas on October 7th. The kidnapping, the raids, the rape, the murders. Condemn the actions of Israel for the horrific retribution they've brought in the days and weeks since. Condemn the suicide bombings of Hamas and Hezbollah that moved Israel to erect the walls that partitioned the Gaza and the West Bank. And condemn the inhumane treatment of Palestinians by Israelis within those walls since their, begin since their building. Condemn these acts. They are not of God. But don't let Satan hoodwink you into taking sides with nations. When you do that, you lose sight of people. There's been some attention dedicated to the dehumanizing kinds of language that we've seen become more and more prevalent these days. When we use terms that belittle people or dehumanize them, it can lead us to some pretty terrible places. Uh, in one article from the BBC, we read this. Those observing the current conflict in Israel and Gaza will have heard voices from both sides refer to each other as animals and beasts in various forms. From the mouths of political leaders and media commentators, it can at first appear to be a little more than theatrical flourish, something said for effect. 
But a body of research suggests there are reasons why we should all be hyper-vigilant about the words that we use and hear. Hated, despised, and distrusted groups are often described in dehumanizing ways, both blatantly through animal metaphors and more subtly by using less humanizing, distinctively human descriptions, says Nick Haslam, a professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne in Australia. There's surprisingly, it says, there's surprisingly little evidence that dehumanizing language causes violent behavior, but plenty of evidence says it accompanies it. People who dehumanize others are certainly more likely to treat them badly, it says. And we see this everywhere, right? We see this in our politics where the extremes of both parties refer to each other with insults or name calling, using labels like woke on one side or MAGA on the other side that allow us to think of people as a monolith. Right, that allow our brains to get lazy and think of them not as individuals who bear the image of God, but as members of a block, flattening our vision so that we don't see the people, we see labels. And it keeps us from diving deeper with people and learning how to love. And we see this right now, the language about this war, as the article is saying. Israel and their leaders and some citizens are using words like beasts and animals to describe Hamas. And Hamas using equally dehumanizing language to describe Israel. We're also seeing it in our own college campuses here in the States, where supposedly enlightened students are terrorizing fellow students whose only crime is being Jewish. Once we start to belittle the image of God in someone or extract it from their view of them, our view of them entirely, we can justify all manner of despicable things that go directly against the heart of God. And again, we would condemn the wrong actions, right? The killings, the tortures, the biased behaviors, all of that. Recognizing the image bearerness of a person does not excuse their actions. But we will never deal with their actions in ways that are consistent with Jesus if we forget their imago Dei. If you remember how Jesus dealt with the horrible and inhumane ways that his accusers treated him? He died for them. Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, 
but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Ooh. It gives me like a, oh. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, slap him in the face. It's not the version you have? Is that? No. Okay, sorry. If your hung, enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that's not a passive-aggressive form of, of revenge. It's an expression that was used back in the days. Heaping burning coals on your head means you feel guilty. You feel bad about something. So when you treat them well, it will make them feel bad about the ways that they've treated you. That's all that's saying. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with more evil. You knew that was coming, right? With good. But overcome evil with good. We must side with image bearers. Proverbs 31.8 tells us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. We are to be for all human flourishing. We are to mourn all human tragedy. We must be for all things that contribute to the flourishing of all of God's image bearers. And we must condemn all the acts that cause fellow image bearers to be oppressed, ignored, abused, or killed. This allegiance to God over all will lead us to some uncomfortable places. It will lead us to give praise to our country when it champions causes that help our citizens flourish. And it will lead us to give fair-minded critique of our own country when it has done things that contribute to the degradation of image bearers. It might cause us to have a stance that is not as simplistic as our chosen in-groups would like. There's simplicity in taking sides, right? We like the perceived clarity of knowing who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. But with that mentality, we completely discard the biblical principle that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it is instead a spiritual battle. What can we do against such reckless hate? When so many of the loudest voices out there are furthering the divides and hatred. We have the choice. We have the choice. We have the opportunity to be voices of healing and hope. And paradoxically, one of the best ways for our voices to be heard is to shut up. Right, sometimes to communicate love, healing, and hope is to just shut up and start listening. I've learned so much by listening to people of all stripes during this conflict. In listening, we can let people know that we care about them. We love them. We care less about telling people our own opinions and more about loving image bearers who are suffering right now. 
we can make the choice to be the voice of something better. Healing. Hope. Anna Voigt, the Director of Advocacy and Public Policy for the Mennonite Central Committee in Canada, gives us a prayer that we can pray if we don't have the words, and I'd like to close us out with this prayer this morning. O God of life and love and peace, we witness the violence and injustice in your holy land, and our hearts break. Our hearts break for the people of Israel, for the victims of violent attacks by Hamas, for those who live with fear and insecurity, for those who suffer from the intergenerational trauma of violence. Our hearts break for Palestinians, for the victims of violent attacks by the Israeli military, for those being denied water, electricity, and medical care, for those who are refugees long displaced from their homes. We especially pray that weapons of war be laid down, that walls of separation be dismantled, that prisoners be released, that demonizing of the other cease, that political leaders seek the good of all people in Palestine and Israel. O oh God, our, hearts, our heart breaks for the world. May your justice dwell in the land. May your righteousness abide in fruitful fields. May the effect of righteousness be quietness and trust forever. May the effect of justice be peace, enduring peace. Amen.